welcome to Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is episode 42, um, which may go down in history as being the most ridiculous yet, <laughs> as our first topic suggested by Simon, and I did try and stop him, but <laughs> he did, wanted to go ahead regardless, is trains versus boats. <laughs> More specifically, which books set start? on trains versus books set on boats. Yes. <laughs> I think they got that, Simon. <laughs> well, it might just become like a steam engine enthusiast podcast. Well, I mean, I, I have a lot to say about trains. I don't have a lot to say about trains in books, but we'll see. Okay. Um, and then we're going to um, compare one of my absolute all-time favourite books with a book that is not one of my absolute all-time favourites, but is a very good book nonetheless. <laughs> so, um, Illyrian Spring by Ambridge, which we'll have to wait and see which one is my favourite, um, if you don't know. And then Hotel du Lac by Anita Bruckner. So, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? Hi, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Um, I, although the book, the book I'm trying to read um, is, is um, The Masters by C.P. Snow, which is oh. my book group choice. Um, or, or not my choice, but someone in book would choose it. And I'm finding it so boring. Oh, that's a shame. It is a shame. So, um, it's apparently it's the middle of a series, but you can read them all in, independently. I think I think the series is called Strangers and Brothers. Um, but it's the whole thing is just about who's going to be the new master of uh, Cambridge College, and there's literally no subplot. It's just like they picked <laughs> two people, and they just so far I'm halfway through. They just talk about which of the two it should be, and who's on which side. And I don't care. <laughs> that does sound really dull. And I feel like a, a really good writer can make you care about things that you don't think you care about. Like, um, a really good example is The Warden, Anthony Trollope, where it, it's, no one really would care whether or not someone, I can't even remember what the crux of it is, but, you know, gets rent from almshouses. Or, I think it's something along those lines. Um, but he makes you care because he writes so well. Whereas C.V. Snow, like, I always assumed that I would like C.V. Snow, and I didn't quite know what that's based on. But, um, <laughs> but, but I, don't, and I don't know if all these characters have appeared in the previous books in the series. But I just, like, pick one of them, whatever, or neither of them. Whatever. I just don't, yeah, I can't sit through another 120 pages of this. <laughs> but I'm going to have to. That sounds really boring. Same. Well, you don't have to, Simon. Well, I would normally give, I've given up, but for book group, I feel like I should finish it. I mean, you could just do a Jenny and read the end. Well, this is true. Oh gosh, if I get to the end, then they haven't decided who the master. Is. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a very nice lady called Margaret, a book group who suggested it, and we always seem to dislike each other's choices. <laughs> but we oh. get on very well. And there's always books I think I should like, um, but end up not. Well. So I'm shelving that <laughs> most of the time and reading other things, such as a book called Resurrection Year by Sheridan Voisey, who goes to my church, and it's all about. Ten years he and his wife spent trying to have a child unsuccessfully, and and how they sort of recovered from that. So, which is you know different. <laughs> um, it's very very good and very moving, but it, it's also slightly strange reading a book by someone I know not. I don't know him very well, but I certainly know him. And sort of reading yeah. this emotional turmoil, I was thinking. Well, normally, I just chat to him about you know the weather. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's very good. Um, how about you? What are you reading? Oh, I've just finished reading Mansfield Park, um, Jane Austen. Um, because that Mansfield I, Park. Yeah, that Mansfield Park. There's so, so many books called that. I just felt <laughs> the need to, to say at the end. Um, and I'm going to be teaching it in September. And I've actually had a very interesting reading experience because some people may know that um, I intensely dislike, um, not the novel, but the heroine, Fanny hmm. Price. And I remember I read it on my blog a few years ago and I had quite, there's quite a lot of debate going on with, in the comments section with people taking umbrage at my stance. Um, and I was just like, this is the, sev- I've read Mansfield Park several times and each time I hated Fanny Price and just thought she was so annoying and Edmund as well. Mm. Um, and this time I've just, it's been a completely different experience. I don't know what's happened. How bizarre. It's like the scales have been lifted from my eyes. Gracious. Um, I know. And I think it's because I, I deliberately was reading it with a very open mind because obviously when I'm teaching it, I'm very careful always not to push my interpretation on the mm. children. Mm. I always try and give as many possible uh, ways of looking at things as possible. So I was like, well, you know, Rachel, you can't go into this thinking how annoying Fanny is. You have to, to be looking at it with 
um, from lots of different perspectives and really picking apart the language and you've got to get the kids to be able to figure out who they like and who they don't and why. So I was like, yeah, okay, I can do this. Um, and now I'm like, Fanny was the good person all along. Ah. So, yeah, do you have any idea what's what's changed? Well, I think it's because I... Maybe it's because I'm older, I don't know, but it's the... I think before I always thought, oh, Mary and Henry are such, you know, they're so much fun and, you know, they're just mucking around. And actually this time I was reading it, I saw the nastiness in their behavior. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I'd always seen them as being, you know, Fanny's super boring and um, she just wants to stop everyone from having fun. And she's just like, oh, everyone's terrible and they're so mean and stuff. And I do think, you know, she does take it a bit far in place. It's like, you know, get a sense of humor. But at the same time, she's, She's right. They are not very nice people and they're totally out for themselves. And actually, when before I was like, oh, Mary Crawford's a bit like Elizabeth Bennett. And then this time I read it, I was like, she's nothing like Elizabeth Bennett. I don't know why I ever thought that. It's interesting because I've only read it once when I was, I think, 18. And to me, she seemed quite like Elizabeth Bennett. So I should reread. I think, I think the reason it's my least favorite Austin or Shelley Downer is, um, is probably the pacing rather than the characterization though. But does that improve yes. on rereading? No, actually, it does, because it's, it is a long novel, and my students are not going to thank me over the summer <laughs> as they plow their way through it. But it's, and I think it's kind of, not a lot happens, um, but the stuff that does happen is quite, it's a lot of interiority going on. Um, and it does need that length of time for you to appreciate the difficulties that Fanny experiences. And I felt really sorry for her this time around. I was thinking, you know, how trapped she is. And I noticed at the time she couldn't do the things she wanted to do. And, you know, I actually think writing-wise and structure and everything, I think it's probably one of Austen's best. I just mm. think the, prob- the problem is it doesn't have that endearingness about it that the other novels have. And the problem is because Fanny and Edmund are, are not particularly, you know, exciting characters they don't have this whole terrible will they won't they relationship the whole way through where one of them hates the other and they keep having fights and things it's a very placid relationship and still i got to the end and thought seriously it's taken you 500 pages <laughs> now you've realized that actually your cousin's quite fit and you're going to marry her anyway um and that's basically what happens and also i was like really i'm slightly uncomfortable with this because really basically your brother and sister talk about their, their craft this way <laughs> <laughs> But yes, Obviously, they basi- I don't phrase it to the children. <laughs> they basically are brother and sister. I mean, so many yeah. of Austin's pairings are essentially brother well, and sister. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know. Um, but um, yeah, it's great. You know what? Rereading is something I don't do often enough. That's made me have a realise of that. And I, I do want to have a read, but obviously who has the time when there's so much new stuff to read? Well, exactly. Mansur Park always makes me think, and this is not intellectual, um, so <laughs> my, my, my friend Claire and I spent one happy summer texting each other with t- book titles and phrases and all that sort of thing, where we just replaced the last word with the food stuff. Um, right. so, such thing as, if, if music be the food of love, play onion, and, and you know, many a slip twixt cup and chip. All these sort of hilarious things. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad contributed Mansfield pork to it, and I was very proud of him. <laughs> that's, that's very good. <laughs> oh, what fun we had. <laughs> it was very hard to explain to people why we found it so funny, particularly since we were sending hundreds of these things. <laughs> we probably had to be there. Yeah, perhaps you did. Yeah. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of the foremost wits, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, yes. Well, can I give some backstory to the first half of this episode? <laughs> Must you? <laughs> be very brief. Do we want it? <laughs> I think it was a previous I said maybe maybe six or seven ago where I said if no one suggests anything we'll be forced to do boats versus trains and then at least two people I can't remember who one of them was but Imogen was one of them said that they would be interested to hear books for, set on boats versus books and trains and we have we are nothing if not the servants of the people. <laughs> Those people are now instantly regretting writing that. <laughs> yeah, they're like we were joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I yeah, I think we have a track record of me forcing um <laughs> topics on you that end up being brilliant, like cats versus dogs, that turned yeah. out great. I'm having a flashback to cats versus dogs right now. <laughs> Terrible episode. <laughs> oh dear. Well, well 
I've done lots of homework and I came up with lots. I did say if you came up with a different topic, we'd do that instead. But you didn't. Yes. So now it's my fault, apparently. <laughs> and imagine if we were really modern and up with what was going on. We'd totally be doing The Girl on the Train. I know, I was thinking that. <laughs> the Woman in Cabin Why 10. Why haven't I read it? I haven't <laughs> even seen the film. No, me neither. We can't talk about that one at all. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what do you have? Well... I've, does it matter if the, if, the, if the boat's not a major part of the novel? Well, I mean, not necessarily. As, I mean, as long as it's there <laughs> for, for at least a handful of pages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it's Ideally, definitely a handful. Ideally, um, I, I was thinking um, mainly about children's novels, actually, and how frequently boats are in children's novels. So mm. I thought about my favourites as a child, so I absolutely love the Swallows and Amazon series, which is all set in the Lake District, and them sort of messing about in their boats and mm. going around into the little islands on lakes and things. Um, and the boats, boats feature a lot in the Famous Five, which again I read a lot oh, as a yes, child. Of course, yeah. Um, they're always using boats to get to escape and to get into scrapes and all sorts of things. Um, so yes, that, those are, that's what I've got there. Yeah. Um, obviously the railway children as well with with the train. And then I was just thinking of there are a huge number of detective novels set on trains. So The Wheel Spins by Ethel Lena White, I think her name is. That's right, yeah. And then, obviously, Agatha Christie's written loads on trains. Yeah, so there's Murder on the Orient Express, there's Mystery of the Blue Train, there's possibly others. Four, four something from Paddington. Oh, 450 from Paddington, yeah. Yeah. Um, or which was published as uh, What Mrs. McGillicuddy Saw in America. Ah. There you go. <laughs> in case people are... And there's lots of trains in Victorian novels, obviously. I mean, I could go on about that for years. Well, yes. Um, please, no. We'll come back to that, probably, when we, when we run out of... I don't think people want me to. <laughs> Tweet I can hear the groans from here. Tweet at book underscore snob if you want to hear <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's views on trains in Victorian novels. <laughs> of course, Cranford's all about the, the arrival of the railway, isn't it? Indeed it is, Simon. Yeah. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Um, in fact, one, one of the people who tweeted was Dean Street Press um, about a trilogy of authors, sorry, a trilogy of books by Elizabeth Gill, which I think might well be crime books, um, and The Pleasure Cruise Mystery by Robin Forsyth. Oh, um, is that interesting? So thank you for that, Dean Street Press. Oh, and, and they've got very nice pictures. Well, two of them are pictures of a train. No, one's got a train, one's got a car, one's got a boat. Elizabeth Gill was all over it. Um, I think there is a quite, yeah, as you say, a lot of detective novels on boats or trains. There's obviously like Death on the Nile. Oh yes, um, because it is that sort of. It's the equivalent of the remote country house, isn't it? It's the it must be what person who was here, and no one else could get here or away from here absolutely um so yes i did find a disproportionate number of of those um mystery in white as well which i said i haven't read that's on a train isn't it yes partly on a train yes very good as well yeah. um so other things that i got that aren't detective novels and that you haven't mentioned or ones you haven't mentioned yet um i well i've written the girl on the boat which is not like the girl on the train, it's a P.G. Woodhouse <laughs> novel. <laughs> so, um, in back in the days when you had to use a boat to get from Britain to America, I think there were quite a few books, although I can't think of that many, <laughs> um, where where the boat l- looms large. I think uh, one of Paul Gallico's. Um, is, does Mrs. Harris go to America in one of them? Yes, she does. So, Mrs. Yeah, Harris think... goes to New York. Ah, that's it. And I think quite a lot of that is on a boat on the way there. Um, the provincial lady on her, goes on the boat on the way to America. Of course she does. Um, so, yes, we lose that in these days of plane travel, all of the experience of the long voyage. Yes, and actually, you know, now you mention it, I it is something happen. that's... I mean, it's just I'm going to have loads of ideas now. Yeah. Um, it is something that's very much of a particular period, isn't it? I think particularly boats used for... So that sort of purpose. I should say we're using boat and ship interchangeably. Sorry, boat purists. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think in the days when it really, like in the way that the train still is to a certain extent, or to a great extent, the the, the boat was a was a way that people got around the world functionally. Whereas perhaps now it's more just you make that choice to have it as a recreation 
Yeah, well, likewise with the trainer in many ways. I mm. mean, certainly going to Europe, I mean, obviously we're very fortunate being in Britain that we can get a train to mainland Europe. And, mm -hmm. But a lot of people choose to fly because it's quicker. Um, but it's, yeah, it's it's that idea of it going back to that golden age when travel was something exciting. And it was also, obviously, I mean, on boats and things and trains, there were always lower class um, tickets available like uh, cheaper tickets mm -hmm. um, but it, it was something of a particular class and, and, and it was an experience in itself so those novels tend to be set um, in upper class settings and you also have the mingling of people from different backgrounds you've got the staff you've got the people that there's always someone in disguise or something <laughs> as well isn't there who's like in who's in the second class compartment or the, or the first class compartment when they should be in the second class and you've got stairways and things. And, and it is that sort of closed room environment where nobody can leave. So you're all in it together. Yeah, it's a very, really good point. It is like a microcosm of societal hierarchies that go on in these places. Mm. Um, because, as you say, there are always places that belong to certain classes. Um, and I think that's often used... As a sort of, yeah, in a really interesting way to show a microcosm of society. Um, you phrase that so much more intellectually than I <laughs> I just wait for you to the ideas and I'm like, I can <laughs> pass it off as my own. <laughs> um, I think you mentioned earlier the wheel, uh, is it the wheel spins or the wheel turns? Yes, the wheel yeah, spins. The wheel spins, I think the white. Um, for those who don't know, that is later turned into the film The Lady Vanishes, the Hitchcock film. Um, and I think that uses... Um, the entrapment of a train really interestingly not just not just for the it must be someone here who did it but you feel the entrapment throughout the time yes. you're on the train in that the danger is present and they can't get away from it whereas something like Murder on the Orient Express the danger is present but I think I think it's more of a conceit just to to um, limit the number of suspects perhaps yeah and um, I think what's interesting I mean to to reference the girl on the train that neither of us have read, but I mean, I, I, I do know the plot because everyone at work has read it, so they've all been talking about it. Um, it that idea of, I mean, I don't know whether that's representative of, of modern novels, treatment of transportation novels in general, but the idea of older novels, it's you're on the train, something happens on the train, whereas that novel is the person's on the train and views something happening outside of the train, and the train ceases to be the, the place of interest. Mm. And I wonder whether that reflects a change in our attitudes towards transportation and the purposes of transportation. Like, that's a commute. That's just, you know, being on the train is the dullest thing ever, whereas um, certainly in The Wheel Spins and the Agatha Christie novels, it's always a fancy train. No, it's lost, lost the mystique. I know. I mean, I just yeah. long to go on the Orient Express. Well, interestingly, um, one of the books I wrote down isn't actually on a train, but it's called oh. um, All Quiet on the Orient Express. Oh. Um, by Magnus Mills, which has obviously merges Murder on the Express and All Quiet on the Western Front, and <laughs> uh, in the titles, not in the plot. Um, I was going to say, what an interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you read any Magnus Mills? I haven't. No. He's a really interesting, sort of unusual. He is quirky. I, quite, I don't hate the word quirky like some people do, but I think he is a quirky writer. And th that book's basically all about the perils of not being able to say no. So, <laughs> so he turns up. I think it's a campsite, and they basically ask him for some help or something. And this spirals in him constantly not being able to say no to the things they've asked for help with until he's basically trapped there. And it's <laughs> called All Quiet on the Orient Express because the reason he wants to leave is to catch the Orient Express. That's his plan. But he oh. cannot get to it. <laughs> and it's quite dark and quite funny. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. But when I wrote down Merida on the Orient Express, I thought, oh yes, that one too. <laughs> Um, and a train book that I listened to the audio recording of, actually, was um, The Train in the Meadow by Robert Nathan. And I think I've mentioned him before about Portrait of Jenny, maybe. But um, it was a really strange short novel about um, a train that stops in the middle of nowhere and no one knows why. And they're getting off and they're talking to people from a previous train, I think. And, and I think it's sort of a metaphor for purgatory, but, it, but oh. it's never, never quite clear. It's all very... Mysterious, but in very straightforward prose, and um, it makes for an really interesting combination. I do like Robert Nathan. He's he's quite hard to find here, but I found quite a few of them in America. 
not heard of him, I have to say. Yeah, the only one that, and it's not particularly famous by any means, but Portrait of Jenny, which is about, um, he's someone who paints a portrait of a girl called Jenny who just grows older much quicker than she should every time he sees her. I think that's right. Which was turned into a film. Um, that's the only one that I think anyone might have heard of. But he was very prolific. And in, in fact, wrote one called The Enchanted Voyage, set on a boat, but I've not read it. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Um, <laughs> the only other one I've put that I've read... Oh no, The Mr. Norris Changes Trains by Christopher Isherwood. But again, the trains aren't that important. He just uses, just uses them to get to Berlin, basically. Um, and No Signpost in the Sea by Vita Sackville West, which was her last book and that was on a boat and it's sort of like I think it's been a long time since I read it but I think it's about someone who learns she's got terminal cancer and then goes on a cruise oh. could be wrong but some suggestions we had when I asked on Twitter include dun, 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 where has it gone um, Ophelia suggests Three Men in a Boat of course yes no, I've never read that have you not? It's so funny. No, I've had a copy of it for years, but I've never read it. Ah, it's oh, it's wonderful. As is the sequel, Three Men on a Bummel in a Bummel. I don't know. Um, <laughs> she also suggests Two Five Three by Jeff Ryman, which is quote a fictional account of a trip on the London Underground. Oh, Two. sounds thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Susanna suggests The Man in the Brown Suit, another um, Agatha Christie. Apparently, Andrew Martin wrote a series of railway detective novels. Um, and there is English Passengers. That's Matthew Neal, isn't it? On a ship? Yes, I haven't read that. And Star of the Sea. Is that Joseph O'Connor? Yes. Yes, I did read that many years ago. I just remember Dickens turns up at one point. Mm. And, of, and of course, Jenny, oh, from reading the end, is a big fan, I, th- I believe, or perhaps isn't, but certainly has read <laughs> the Master and Commander series. Well, I mean, I haven't read Master and Commander but I have watched the film, um, and I do love it. And people are always really surprised I when say, Russell I say Crow. that. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's Paul Bethany that gets me every time. He's never made a bad film. <laughs> uh, well, you know, he's, he's literally made a... never made a good film. <laughs> Listen, he's he's had a bad run. But, you know, <laughs> he's doing it any time. He's, he's a very good actor, very mm. attractive, and he's going to be in Journey's End that's coming out this autumn. Oh, there you go. Is he still being allowed to make films? Gracious. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose the Da Vinci Code is very successful, even if it was terrible. Simon, he's very naughty. I'm sorry, Paul. I like him very much. And it's an English teacher's dream. I mean, Journey's End, with Paul Bethany in it. <laughs> okay, kids, we're watching the DVD today. <laughs> but, miss, we did it last lesson, too. Shit! <laughs> So, um, besides the things you said, do you think there are any other reasons why an author might set a book on a boat or a train? Well, I think there's, I think there's several reasons why I would set a book on a boat or a train. So I'm just using it from my perspective. I think, sure. as we've already said, you've got the, you've got the mixing of the social classes. You've got people mixing with each other who would never come across each other before. Um, you've got people who are stuck with each other for a, a certain amount of time and therefore even if when they first meet they don't get along, you've got that opportunity to develop relationships in quite an intense environment which can be really interesting, mm-hmm. certainly romantic relationships. Um, and you've also got the sense of um, travel and movement and excitement in a sense, certainly on a train you're moving through a landscape, you can... Um, kind of describe the areas around you. On a boat, it's quite interesting to be at sea. And also, you can have terribly disastrous things happen on transportation as well. So, for example, you know, on a boat, obviously, you could have some kind of accident or crash or something, and the boat could be sinking, and that adds drama. Or the same with the train. You can have the train breaking down, tensions rising, all that sort of thing, people missing trains. So there's lots of opportunities for kind of plot devices that you wouldn't have if you were in a stagnant place, I suppose. And there is an element of grammar to it as well, I think, certainly because, I mean, no one ever writes books about people travelling, you know, standing up on their way to London on a packed commuter train or being <laughs> or being shoved on a dinghy somewhere trying to cross the Atlantic. <laughs> I mean, you're always on an interesting sort of cruise ship 
that's very beautiful inside or or on a train that's lovely that's got a dining car and nice individual compartments and plush seats and things and I think that's probably really why you don't tend to find many books nowadays that are set on those forms of transport because there's nothing romantic or particularly interesting and also our transport so much quicker as well so you don't have that you're not going to be on a boat for three or four days altogether unless you're having mm-hmm. a cruise obviously so yep. I think it's quite interesting it's an interesting device but it's I do I feel that it's very much of its time yeah I think I mean I certainly know less about modern fiction than I do about modern fiction anyway but um I do get the impression that it's it is something that is either there because it's got a bit of glamour or a bit of adventure or, or it's there because it's got claustrophobia Mm. Um, and once I guess the cluster of everything could could still happen now, the glamour I believe ha- probably has mostly faded. Yeah, um, definitely. I, I mean, but our definition of boat, including ship and rowing boats, or whatever, does encompass a bit, I guess, a bit more variety because it does have the whole Swallows and Amazons style thing, where it's not just yeah, yeah, get to, for, to get from A to B. Um, I think in children's novels, it's very much the boat thing is, is the idea of freedom because obviously children can't drive. So the only thing that they, mm, yeah. and, and also a boat is free. If you've got a boat, you can just hop in. You don't need any skill. You don't need any money. You don't need to have passed a test or anything. Mm. You can just go. And there is that lovely idea of it, isn't there? Yeah. We well, must mention Wind in the Willows, of course. Yes. To, yeah. Nothing so good as messing about on the river or whatever it is. Absolutely. Messing about in boats, perhaps. But, um, yes, and pirates is a whole separate um, mm. <laughs> discussion, isn't it? If you had to choose one of these, do you think there's enough distinction between that you can land on one side of the... The debate. Well, as someone who loves trains, you know, I just I'm a big a big fan of trains, and I do find um, the depiction of trains in Victorian novels very interesting. And I'm not deliberately not talking about that because they're often not the centre of the plot; they're just a sort of sideways thing. Yeah, yeah. But you know, trains being metaphor for change and everything, I find that really interesting. Boats, not so much. I mean, I'm not a good sailor myself, <laughs> so um, I think for me, I find trains really interesting, and I find that claustrophobia and also um, the idea that you can you can hide on sections of the train. Also, the, the train can stop and people can be smuggled out and things. Whereas on a boat, it's a bit more difficult to do that sort of thing. So um, I think I'd come down on the side of trains. Um, and I will as well, actually. I think part. Partly for the sort of reasons you're saying. I think mostly because you can have the interesting things in the train and outside the train. Mm. Whereas a ship, it's just the sea. Um, there's, yeah, you just there's not. You can have all the interesting things in in the ship or boat, but um, but yeah, you're not going to see something out a window that's really interesting, or you're not going to. You know, I don't know. It's, it just seems a bit more yeah. prosaic, perhaps. Whereas I, I similarly also, especially particularly if it's a steam train, love a steam train. So. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? <laughs> Quite, yeah. The environment, perhaps. But well, perhaps else. the environment, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Beeching, I believe, was not a fan of them. But, um, well, there you go. So, was it, were you converted to the, the genius of the topic, Rachel? Actually, it was more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I'll know. give you that. Thank you. I'll take You're it. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, didn't even mention the Chronicles of Narnia. There's plenty of trains in there. And boats. Gosh, the Dawn Treader. So much, so many. <laughs> anyway, that's that. So we should <laughs> turn to our second half, which is um, Illyrian Spring by Ambridge versus. Yeah. Um, I still don't know. Is, is it, are we, are we going to pronounce the age? Well, if we want to be properly French, you have to say Hotel du Lac. Because it's du Lac, I thought maybe it would be Hotel. But, hmm. okay. We can do know. Hotel. Oh, no, your French accent's going to be too good. Let's go, Hotel. So, <laughs> Hotel de Lac by Anita Bruckner, um, which, or certainly in Illyrian Spring, they, they they start off using a boat together, don't they? They do, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about Hotel de Lac, whether they... <laughs> I can't remember how they get that. <laughs> but before we get that far, um, would you like to introduce one of them, please? Which would you rather I do? Um, I think... I think... Yo, go for Illyrian Spring. Okay. So Illyrian Spring is um, a novel about a woman called Grace who is a painter. She's very wealthy. She is the wife of somebody very wealthy and important. 
And for a long time, she has felt um, that her husband has lost interest in her and her children have lost interest in her. And she just feels very lost in her life. She's reached middle age and um, she doesn't really know who she is anymore. So she also happens to be a painter. And she decides that she's going to go off to the Dalmatian coast for the summer and paint and just be by herself and rediscover herself. And she's not going to tell her husband where she's going. She's just going to go. Um, So she does. And on her way there, on the boat, in fact, Mm -hmm. um, she meets (laughs) Nicholas, who is in his 20s. And he is also escaping his family and hasn't told them where he's going. Um, He is also wants to be an artist and his parents don't want him to be an artist and they're putting a lot of pressure on him to pursue a career that he's not interested in and he just wants to go off and do his own thing um and so grace sort of takes nicholas under her, her wing and they end up traveling around the Dalmatian coast together a completely platonic relationship um and though nicholas i think you know would quite wouldn't mind um if grace fancied him but she certainly doesn't <laughs> the same age as her children um and they as they travel around the the coastline of croatia and italy they discover so they learn from each other and they discover so much about themselves and they develop the ability to um see their lives in different ways and see the people around them in different ways and they get the strength to kind of go back and and to fight for what they want and it's it's a beautiful novel Thank you. So that novel was published in 1935. Um, yes. Lack is a lot later, 1984, mm-hmm. um, but sort of similar theme in as much as escaping from from the ordinary life. So this is about the romance novelist Edith, um, what's her Hope, Edith Hope, <laughs> ironically. Um, <laughs> uh, she is um, coming out of a, an a, an affair with a married man and and an aborted marriage and she is being sort of banished by her friends and I'm largely reading Wikipedia here. <laughs> um, <laughs> she decides to go to this hotel which is um, by Lake Geneva sort of I guess to rediscover herself or just to get away from the life that she wants to avoid. Um, it, the hotel is mostly filled with um, drab <laughs> unhappy people it seems so there's the mother and daughter, uh, Mrs. Pusey and Jennifer. Um, there is a man called Mr. Neville, um, who sort of com- completely misunderstands her, and they have a fairly curious relationship. Um, and then basically nothing really happens. <laughs> she, just, she just sort of sit, sits in the hotel feeling sad about so, uh, how much she dislikes her, her, her life. Um, <laughs> and... Much the same is happening to everyone else at the hotel. As far as I can recall, can you remember anything anything more detailed? No, that's pretty much it, really. Yeah. So I read both these books in 2011, I discovered through looking at my blog, quite close to each other. And indeed, I read earlier in spring because you strong-armed me into doing so. (laughs) So, Wow. And I read Hedda Lack for Anita Bruckner Day, which Thomas at Hogglestock was running with, possibly with Francis. Um... Yes, International Anita Brook Day, which on, was f- to celebrate her, oh, no, Simon, Simon and Thomas were coasting, um, to uh, celebrate her birthday. Um, and oh. It was the only book of hers I had at the time, so I thought, why not? I'll read that one. Um, when did you read these books? Um, well, um, I've read Delirium Spring twice. And I think the first time I read it was, let's have a look, um, 2009, apparently. Gosh. Oh. Um, and then I read it again in 2012, and I was very worried when I read it again that I wouldn't love it as much, but I did, so it was fine. Right. And then Hedley Lack, I think I read in, it was after I got back from New York, because I remember I bought it when I was living in New York, but I didn't read it at the time. So probably 2011-ish as well, I would imagine, or 2012 maybe, yeah. And have you read any other books by these authors? Yes. Um, Olivia and Spring, I, uh, uh, and Bridge, sorry, I've read Peking Picnic, which is also very good. And mm-hmm. I think I've read another one as well, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But I didn't, it was also very good. She is, um, she was the wife of a diplomat and she spent her life traveling, particularly around China. And she, um, all of her books are to do with 
foreign countries and the experience of traveling and being abroad. So she's really, really good at describing landscapes and different cultures and cultural interaction. And that's a huge part of, of all of her novels, just as much as the plot. It's the it's the setting. And I was really impressed by Illyrian Spring, um, so Seven Dalmatian Coast, as you, as you probably said. Mm. Um, and I normally don't like books that spend a lot of time talking about the scenery. Um, and I, this is one of our very first, perhaps our first episode, we talked about books written by English people abroad, and how, mm. I, and I normally don't like them because they they end up feeling a bit like travel guides. And indeed, in this one. Um, the main character is carrying around a travel guide at all times. So you, you think how you put up, but um, it was one of the few ones that really worked for me. That um, that I could, yeah. The, even her descriptions of scenery um, and the f- flora and fauna that she saw, I just loved, and it really it was really evocative. Really took you um, to your place. I think we talked a little bit about it when maybe when we talked about writers versus artists in mm. in books, but um, yeah, it, it was. Um, quite a revelation. Um, but I'm glad. Occasionally, it works for me. <laughs> um, and I do, I do like that sort of novel of the, particularly, um, I guess the the unappreciated woman escaping. The um, what's the Peter Sapper worst one? All passion spent. It's quite similar yes. in that regard. Um, and I'm sure there are others that aren't immediately springing to mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's really interesting novel as well I think from the with when you think about the characterization because it is a novel about people escaping and finding themselves and I think um, a lazier writer would have had a love affair between the two of mm-hmm. but Ambridge wants to make it respects both of her characters too much for that and it's that what makes it work so much is the fact they do have this platonic relationship and, and Grace respects Nicholas and she wants his opinion because he's the same age as her daughter mm-hmm. and she wants to understand what people that age think and feel because her daughter has no respect for her anymore, their relationship is broken down, her, she thinks that her mum is needy and pathetic um, and Grace has taken it all completely personally. It's like, you know, what have I done? I'm a terrible person. Even my own daughter doesn't love me. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas is able to give her the perspective of a younger person that obviously she's forgotten from when she was that age. And at the same time, she's able to give him the benefit of her age and, and to say to him, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that. You, you shouldn't accept this, you shouldn't accept that. And so they learn and grow from each other. And it's, it's actually quite rare in a book that you get that multi-generational friendship. Hmm. Um, and this is Palfrey at the Claremont that we talked about yes. is a really good example as well isn't it yeah and I think a lot of novelists don't really want to go down that route there's always so much of a focus on romance being the ultimate goal of any relationship and actually here the friendship is what is so important and it's such an unexpected friendship as well and a friendship that neither of them are looking for both of them very much wanted to be by themselves mm-hmm. but actually they find that they don't want to be by themselves they they really enjoy each other's company and they also there are parts of the book where they split off and go their own way and it's that ability also just to let each other go and to do their own thing and there's such a real sense of freedom about the whole book and every time I've read it I've just been like oh you know it's such a life-affirming book about what, about, you know, the inner strength that we all have and the fact that no problem is ultimately insurmountable. So inspiring, Richard. Um, I, I do remember from reading your review back in the day, before I read it, um, that we definitely differed on, on Nicholas and I can stand him as a person, oh. like as a character individually, but, he says... Hastens to add, really liked their pairing. Like I, mm. I, I, I might. I didn't hate Nicholas as much as that, but he. I just found him. He's just. He's quite rude. He's selfish. He's very pleased with himself. He think, um, constantly going about indigestion if memory serves. <laughs> yes, <he does. laughs> um, but and and indeed, Grace herself, you know, has plenty of qualities. She's not. There's plenty of qualities that aren't that appealing. She's not this um, really lovely person all the time. But I think what works really well about it is it takes these two people and they've, by putting them together into a friendship, it does sort of rub the corners off each of them. Um, and yeah. I mean, you, you came from a place of already liking them both quite a lot, so perhaps it doesn't matter to you. But um, to me, yeah, on paper, both of them are quite irritating. But, <laughs> but it works when they're together. I mean, what I think possibly the main thing I disliked was 
about their personalities, and this was something that I wish hadn't been in the novel, was their intellectual snobbery, which is yeah. just they they. I think I talked about it on the artists and writers one where I said they they don't seem to believe anything creative is worth doing unless you're brilliant at it, and they they think people who aren't brilliant at painting shouldn't paint, and people who aren't brilliant at writing shouldn't write, and there doesn't seem to be any element of just, you can do things because they're fun. No, I think they they come from this quite privileged expectation that, you know, you should be able to, to make a living out of what you're doing creatively, and if, mm. if you don't make a living out of it, then it, it's not worth anything, and actually that idea of, of people just finding deep pleasure and satisfaction in producing something creative, even if it's not good enough to sell, Mm-hmm. Um, they don't, yeah, they, they see it very much as, as it being a career or nothing. Um, which is all very easy to say when you're bankrolled by someone else. Well, quite, yes. <laughs> and they, I mean, they're certainly not just intellectual snobs, they're also just snobs as well. Like, I mean, they're from yeah, a, you know, yeah. they are from an upper class background. Grace is a lady because her husband is a sir, you know. There is a, a real sense, you have to kind of swallow that part down, just yeah, accept. Yeah fact that they are terribly wealthy snobby people who have no idea how privileged they are once you've got over that part it's wonderful and I, yeah and i feel like ambridge didn't really quite realize that as well i feel like she's completely on their side and perhaps moving yes. in circles herself well absolutely and i think there is that element of blindness to it you know obviously she's not a, she's not a working class novelist she's not interested in writing about working class people but what i do find quite nice about it is the fact that Grace isn't just some hobbyist painter. She's actually a very well-respected, um, very um, highly selling artist in her own right. And she doesn't actually tell Nicholas that. And I like the fact that um, she's very successful and very talented, but her husband does not appreciate that at all and doesn't seem to care. And yet she continues doing it anyway. And I really like the fact that she's allowed to be so good at stuff. If you see what I mean. That's true. It would have been a lot easier for... I mean, I'm saying that I wish that they had allowed quality to be less of a deciding factor. But yes, it is nice that she's not just some hobbyist, twittery old lady who's painting watercolours or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. <laughs> Come on, Simon. But yes, nothing will make me warm to Nicholas as, a, as an individual. But, you know, I'm often outvoted on these things. <laughs> I think he falls into the Lord Peter Whimsy school of insufferable um insufferably self-pleased <laughs> to me <laughs> but um but it is testament to their friendship that, I, that um, it works when they're together um whereas yes it had lack um i'm afraid I'll, I'll, I'll paint my colors to the mask now that i couldn't i just i just dislike that novel a lot <laughs> um, yeah possibly yeah. because it, i thought i'd like it so much and it's the only book of hers i've read um but I was just so disappointed because I found it so drab and tedious. And I, I was reading, reading my view and thinking, sometimes boring characters make for brilliant re- reading. Like, Mr. Collins is very boring, mm. but, but reading about him is brilliant. Um, Edith is boring and reading about her I found boring. I just found, just found it a real slog to get through. And normally books where nothing happens, Books where middle class women do nothing. I mean, come on, <laughs> that's that's basically my bread and butter. <laughs> but but um, I don't know if it's, yeah. because it's because of the period it was written in, perhaps. I found I it a very strange novel because when I was reading it, it felt like it should have been set in the nineteen fifties, but it's mm-hmm. contemporary. It's not. It's supposed to be in nineteen eighties. I mean, that's it. Doesn't say give any indication of it being otherwise, mm. and it just felt completely jarring the whole time I was reading it it just it felt like something was wrong it was out completely out of place everybody was behaving in a way that was completely unlike people of that time would have behaved in everyone was stuck 30 years in the past and the very Mm. fact that she'd been sent off to this hotel by her friend to sort herself out Again, I was like, really? Would somebody have done that in the 1980s? <laughs> yeah, Everybody sure. think they would have done. And all these women who are just sort of wilting away in this hotel, having been abandoned there by various terrible partners or, you know, ineffectual financial arrangements or whatever. And it's depressing as well because obviously it's the end of the summer and so everything's shut. So there's literally nothing for them to do apart from, I think there's one cafe open and they can go and have a slice of cake or something. Um, hmm, hmm. And it is, it's a very, bleak book and I think it's deliberately boring because and it's deliberately like that because she wants it to come across as being very bleak and I suppose 
you know, maybe in the 80s, women did feel a bit more kind of like they they couldn't be on their own and, and it was their lives did feel perhaps more dictated, but I just don't feel that they would have done. Yeah, I mean, she just certainly doesn't help herself when she gets that. <laughs> just, I don't know, she just seems to listlessly move yeah. through life. <laughs> um, I'll just read the description that she, she arrives with. I think she's describing herself. Oh, she is, yes. This mild-looking, slightly bony woman in a long cardigan, distant, inoffensive, quite nice eyes, rather large hands and feet, meek neck, not wanting to go anywhere, but having given my word that I would stay away for a month until everyone decides that I am myself again. So, I mean, we're set, we're getting what we're told, I guess. It's not like she's selling her as this fascinating no. person. I mean, first, firstly, though, what is a meek neck? I don't understand. No. <laughs> but anyway... Um, I haven't read anything else about Interbrain. Have you? Have you? No. I after reading that, I didn't feel that I wanted to read any more. Yes, Thomas did say that they were all much for muchness, and if I didn't like that one, then I probably wouldn't like any of them. I think I've still got family and friends, or something, something along those friends and relations, maybe I don't know, something like that, um, on my shelves. Because I will give her one more try before I give up completely. But um, it's very brave. Well, yeah. I mean, they're short, so that's something. <laughs> but is it won the booker? I mean, why? <laughs> well, it's very well written in her defence. Well, I think it's well written. I don't think it's badly written. But I don't think I go as, strong, as far as very well written. This seems competently written. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's not a book you can feel passionate about, is it? Or well, Thomas does, I think, so... <laughs> Um, or at least Anita all together. I don't know if, if which ones are his favourites. No. I mean, I would just be really interested to know why she wrote... Like, I, if she'd set the book in the 50s, hmm. I think it would be so much more enjoyable because you'd, you'd go into it being like, OK, yeah, all right, I can accept the context of this. I can completely understand that's how it would have been. You know, it'd be like reading a Barbara Pym novel. But... This one, I was just, the whole time I was reading, I was like, this is not true. This cannot be true. This this has no bearing on the reality of what life was like in the 80s. I mean, I was born in the 80s. I mean, it's, come on. It just makes, yeah. it, it didn't feel right. It just, yeah, it didn't, I guess it didn't ring true. I mean, it, it's just sort of not, it doesn't feel substantial enough to ring true, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, as I say, I read these two books at the same time, and I certainly remember a lot more about Lyrian Spring than I do about Delirium Spring is the most beautiful book in the world. <laughs> um, I think it's fair to say that whilst Teal te- Books as a decision-making framework is m- intended to be a really difficult choice, <laughs> <laughs> in this case we may not be pressed too no. hard to uh, decide which is the one we like more. Well, I mean, I have to say now, and I'm, I'm going to say this, everyone listening to this who hasn't read Delirium Spring you must. And it's the perfect summer novel. It was reprinted a few years ago by Dawn Books. It's a lovely so edition. They, it's do, a lo- yeah. they have yeah. a lovely paperback edition. It's very freely available. And it is honestly the most wonderful, life-affirming book. And it's so perfect as well for reading when you're on a summer holiday. Um, particularly for in the Dalmatian Coast, I guess. Well, yes, which has become a very popular destination of recent years. Everyone oh, I know, yeah. apart from me, has been there. I keep Well, well I, I, I also haven't been there, perhaps you. Well, I will one day. We could go and be like Grace and Nicola. But try and be less annoying to each other. <laughs> I need to brush off my painting before we go then. I don't think I'm quite award-winning yet. <laughs> no, I'm certainly not. Two things I can't do, paint and dance. Just the two. Just the two. <laughs> um, well, I certainly am worse at dancing than I am at painting. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and I found that alcohol helps the dancing, but not the painting. So. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so yes, well, there you go. Two votes for trains. Two votes for Illyrian Spring. We're in perfect. Even though time. she went there on a boat. Now <laughs> 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 the boat didn't just nudge it over the edge for you. No. But we would love to hear from. Um, it had like apologists. Yeah. <laughs> Please let us know what we're missing. Um, Thomas is very patiently. Explain that like, he can't explain it to me. I think in the past, but I would like to hear more from people who maybe maybe Anita herself. Phone him. <laughs> you know the number, Anita. Excuse <laughs> <a> ring. <laughs> um, 
And yes. next time... We, oh, yes. What are we doing we, next time, Rachel? So next time, we're going to be talking about As It Was by Helen Thomas. Did she call herself Helen Thomas? Um, I think she was just HT the first time it was published, but yes, later republished as Helen Thomas. Yeah, which is a biography of um, Edward Thomas and by his wife, Helen Thomas, and their relationship. And um, he's a war poet, by the way. I'm just chucking, I'm just talking now. Rubbish. This is, and, this is calamitous. <laughs> yeah, falling apart. Um, and we are going to be comparing that with First of the Wind for France by H.E. Bates, which is a very interesting war novel um, that details the experiences of a English soldier who is kept prisoner in France, but um, is... I think he's like parachuted or a plane or something. So he's sort of hiding inside a French person's house and it's his experiences. So if so yes, you they are quite loosely not... linked books, but vaguely related to war in both cases. So. No, well, we're, we're nothing but not good at finding connections where yes. others can't find. <laughs> and fun fact, Helen Thomas is the name of my aunt. So there, mm, you go. there we are. <laughs> um, yes, and we don't have any suggestions for the first half yet. Please do get in touch um, with any ideas, um, you can email me simonthomasoxford at gmail.com or email rachelbooksnob at gmail.com, is that right? I think it might just be booksnob okay. at hotmail.co.uk. Oh, so, do beg your pardon, I got it horribly wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> otherwise, we might just have to do, you know, cars versus bicycles or something. Don't even next say time. it, because that's <laughs> what we'll end up doing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> No, I can only think of one book with bicycling in it. So. Don't even start. It's off the cards. Um, and yes, all the books and authors that we've mentioned this time are available at stuckinabook.com, a list to read there. Um, and let us know your train books and boat books. Uh, yes. Help me further convince Rachel what a great idea it was. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, other than that, we'll speak to you next time. Bye. Bye.